Hello, everyone. This is Chet Gray. We are going to have John Stallone on this special episode. Um, as we've said previously, we're going to have some bonus episodes that are going to be specific to um, rules and regulations and legislative actions that are coming down from multiple states. We've discussed how for wildlife, and hopefully you enjoyed those previous episodes about how you can have that united voice. Uh, John is going to be gracious enough to share those specific episodes with us, and we're going to share them with all of you as bonus episode. And John's going to talk about a little bit about each one, and we will hopefully be able to play those throughout the rest of this year. Um, if you want to join, you can join at howlforwildlife.org and follow them on Instagram and Facebook. This next episode is going to be geared specific to Arizona. And as we've discussed in the past, we want to have that united voice. Even if it doesn't have something specific to Arizona, it impacts us as sportsmen and women, even if it's for a species that doesn't occur here. And even if it's a, a bill that's being passed in another state, this is that effort that we are joining to have that united voice. This next episode is going to be about the feral horses and the impact they have here on the lands in Arizona. So, John, take her away. Uh, yeah, basically, uh, you already hit it all. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I mean, this uh, this episode I'm going to be doing with John Fasaro, and uh, John is a, a a biologist that uh, has firsthand experience with wild horses and feral horses. And we're going to talk about the differences between the two and what the impact is on the environment for having these animals on the landscape. Uh, it's a really good episode. So um, just tune in and and then get yourself armed with the information and then hopefully you'll get involved and have a better understanding of it. And we hope you enjoy this episode. We all love, we all love seeing wild animals in their natural habitat. This episode, like he said, is specific to those feral horses, how they impact Arizona. If you've hunted in any of the, the uh, units that we've seen them, if you recreate in the Salt River, you've seen those. Uh, tubing down the river is a huge pastime in the summer. If you ever go into the 3A, 3C, and the 4s um, in those specific units, you see a lot of them. Uh, those have become feral because they've escaped or from previous fires uh, in years past. As Arizona, everyone knows that we have a large um, contingency for wildfires but if those horses escape as any animal would then they they become feral after a while like any animal and they have a devastating impact and anyone that's ever hunted the big big bulls up in unit nine in northern arizona have i'm sure seen a lot of the wild and feral horses um, and the impact that they have on our landscape so please tune in for this special bonus episode on feral horses and how they impact Arizona land. Thank you. Hi, I'm John Stallone. Welcome to Howl for Wildlife's Conservation Corner. Your favorite host has stepped up to support your hunting and fishing heritage by agreeing to share our message on their platform. Each month, we will be releasing a show discussing the current issues surrounding hunting and fishing. So be sure to thank them for all they do, and thank you for tuning in. Now let's jump into this episode. Hi, welcome to HowlCast Action Center Review. We are talking about feral horses and um, 
specifically about something that's going on here in uh, Arizona. Uh, it's going on in other states too, but I believe right now there is a push because they are destroying natural habitat and out-competing wildlife that uh, there's a specific herd of feral horses that um, they're calling for a humane removal of. Um, we're going to be talking with Jonathan, Jonathan Fasaro, and Jonathan is, uh, well, you're what, a wildlife biologist by trade, and you're a, a wild horse, uh, I don't know what to, to, to label that, aficionado, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I'm a wildlife biologist and yeah. And I own, I own six Mustangs and my wife mostly, but I help uh, with some of the training of, of Mustangs and getting them to homes through the BLM tip program. So I've gained a lot of knowledge over the years of, of horses and wild horses and feral horses and kind of the whole dynamic and controversy centered around them as a biologist and just a horse owner. Awesome. So, um, well, I guess let's just dive into it. Can you kind of give us a rundown of what's going on um, with this deal in Arizona right now? Sure. So I've been getting myself familiar with this topic uh, for a little while, but um, there's a lot of information out there to digest. So what I know about the situation and that I've learned is – There are a group of feral horses or a herd of feral horses that are in um, kind of the southeastern corner of Arizona that are reaching a level that it's become pretty clear to the foresters that they're deteriorating um, natural habitat, specifically riparian areas, pretty significantly. And we have to identify uh, this area, you know, or we should in this discussion that these are considered feral horses by the Forest Service. Uh, They've done extensive amount of research and documentation that these horses are not horses that were um, present prior to 1970s when they established the Wild Horse and Borough Act. And they, they don't have any documentation of these horses being present in this area mm-hmm. at all um since that since the 40s in fact they don't have any records of any horses out there since the 40s so they use certain criteria to establish what is considered a wild herd protected under the wild horse and burrow act and these horses have been clearly identified by the forest service through multiple types of analyses that these are actually feral horses and essentially what they've concluded from that research is that these horses have come in through uh, grazing allotments that were allowed in the 90s in the area and essentially issues with maintaining fencing. And if anybody knows about fence maintenance, when you're talking about miles of fence um, and trying to maintain them, especially in a forest habitat, it's really challenging to keep the fence up and keep your stock in that area Mm -hmm. and they've just had years of issues with maintaining fence through funding issues and just you know people helping keep it up and horses from original allotments grazing allotments have kind of established themselves in this area and then uh 
wasn't it also a fire that rolled through there uh, in yeah. 2011? Exactly. Yeah. I think it was 2011 yep, so, that's destroyed quite a bit of fencing that allowed these horses to migrate over. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, you're totally right, John. Yeah, right. so the Wallow Fire in 2011 uh, burned like 500,000 acres or something like that. Yeah. And it it de- destroyed a lot of fencing, which allowed for more horses to get into this country and specifically from the neighboring um white mountain apache tribal lands so the fort apache indian reservation has horses on in that country and they have moved into this um apache national forest area and you know there's um you know not gelded male horses in there and you know stallions essentially and that can breed with uh, viable females and they've been uh, the population's been growing, so I and I think their estimates right now are conservatively around 400 horses mm. in that country. So the big issue with this is, for one, they're not a designated wild horse population, and uh, so with the Forest Service, they have to by law do something about this. Now they're not really claimed by somebody, so they're not considered um, to be uh, what they would call kind of like livestock or uh, there's a specific term but you know they're basically feral horses they're not stray horses as they would consider them by law okay um, and so and with that there have been some research projects done and some looking to the species that exist in this area uh, where these horses are and they are showing signs that they're affecting uh numerous endangered species like the new mexican jumping mouse the apache trout species there's a garter snake species in the area that is potentially being affected because it's, these horses have major impact on riparian areas. Um, mm-hmm. There's the leopard chihuahua, uh, the leopard frog species of some sort in that area. And then indirectly, they, they think they could be affecting Mexican spotted owl and this three forks spring snail as well. So there's a whole suite of species in that area that of, are of concern for, um, the forest service and they're under certain types of protection and they uh they're seeing destruction to the native habitat in that area by these horses and, and if anybody who has horses knows <laughs> you know even domestic horses how kind of destructive they are um yeah and in in what they do you know i'm always fixing things that they're damaging on my property and then if you have them in a riparian area they cause mass amounts of deterioration around that riparian area really focusing on you know the edges and the banks and beating them up you know as they get down to the water and that creates erosion and then erosion creates problems for species that aren't you know accustomed to that type of right. know, erosion in the water so I, I know here by by me in the phoenix area um we have a feral horse herd that okay. that's very large um by the salt river and verde river um and they like in the areas that they're concentrated in that it looks like it's right up against a river river. So it should be, you know, lush and have more vegetation, more ground cover. It is literally barren and all the trees are eaten, you know, as high as a horse can reach basically. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's really terrible, like absolutely terrible how much um, damage is being done to that, um, ecosystem there. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. The browse line, and as I'm sure is the case in, in that area of Arizona where they're in more forested country, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's probably a browse line that's significant, you know, in that area and they could identify that as well. You know, and I'm I'm actually located in eastern California, so I haven't set foot in this specific area. Um, and we also have a, a herd of horses that are on Forest Service land that is well known, you know, as a feral horse population and people drop horses off out there, which is a major issue. Mm. You know, the Forest Service doesn't have a plan um, that I'm aware of for this. They don't do any management for these horses. So it's a kind of a similar situation. And there's actually a specific riparian area that is fenced off from the horses for wildlife use. And it's managed by this California Department of Fish and Wildlife. And they're constantly um, working on keeping the horses out and people from cutting the fence to let the horses in. Um, which kind of segues this into like, if you know anything about wild horses and Mustangs and feral horse topic, you know, this is a highly controversial. Oh yeah. Uh, it's like wolves. <laughs> oh yeah. Exactly. Oh yeah. It's like wolves in some ways, even worse. Um, I think from what I've experienced mm-hmm. with people um, and I've kind of looked at some of the, uh, the websites and, and the Facebook pages of organizations that are, interested in stopping any management of the horses in this apache national forest area and you know they they claim that these horses are part of a designated wild horse herd called the hebert herd Mm -hmm. and they're saying that these are the same animals and that these horses are self-regulating and you know they're essentially like trying to stop any management of horses in the apache right area and when you actually look at the analysis because the forest service did a direct analysis looking at that heber herd versus this apache national forest feral herd um, they're over 80 something miles apart from each other with many fences numerous you know highways Um, could a horse travel 80 miles through that country to eventually establish population there it's pretty unlikely i mean they're it's pretty clear that they're not the same herd and you know I'm, I'm i haven't found any genetic analysis to track that for sure but just knowing horse movement and how how you know horses move in the landscape it would be extremely unlikely uh that these horses are you know of the same herd it's just not realistic to think that and they do have evidence of grazing allotments with horses being put in there in the 90s and fence issues in that area and they have evidence of horses coming from the reservation onto these this property so it's it's really clear that this is a feral horse population and not a you know free roaming wild mustang herd established um and the heber herd has its own territory established by the forest service mm-hmm. um, i believe they set that up in i can't remember the exact dates of when they set up but they, they set that territory, I think, in the 70s. Yeah, 1974 is what I... Yeah, 74 is when it was set up. And that horse herd has been growing like by 20% a year, they said. And it's nearly doubled in the last five years. So wow, That's crazy. Um, it, yeah, it's... Horses are really good at reproducing, and they, um, they can outgrow their population objectives pretty quickly. And that's kind of the story across most of the Mustang populations in the West, where a lot of them are 
in Nevada. There's some in Wyoming and Montana, and there's other states that have uh, free roaming wild horse horses, uh, mustangs, and you know that's kind of the story in a lot of them that they're not managed well enough, and they're overpopulated, and they're decimating a lot of their habitat and the riparian area, which is impacting um, like local wildlife populations really significantly. Right. So this is this is a good example though where it should be pretty clean cut and dry uh like type a topic here or issue where they know they're not wild mustangs they're feral and they've done the analyses to determine that and now they have a plan in place where they're actually going to start um trapping essentially like passive trapping mm-hmm. um and I saw the numbers uh, around 20 individuals is what they have so far. And they have a whole plan to, you know, get them adopted out to people who want them and um, try to get them to homes. And will 20 horses be <laughs> significant? No. You know, <laughs> no, not at all. It's like yeah. them just kind of throwing a bone to the people that are concerned, but not really doing much. When you have 400 something horses and you're not managing them to reduce reproduction you know it's just kind of like you know we're doing something but there's not much and you know you can't necessarily blame the forest service for this they're under a lot of pressure from a lot of different angles oh yeah for sure it's really expensive to trap horses too um in the roundups the blm does uh for mustangs would um with helicopters is is a big uh process to do that and mm-hmm. and also you know i'm not sure if that country over there is really suitable for running horses with uh helicopters and, and putting you know and running it's the crowd fairly fairly thick um yeah it's you know pond thick old stand ponderosa okay yeah yeah so it's not necessarily even practical to round up that many like they do um in other parts of the country yeah I know um, I've spoke to um, another organization and they were talking a lot about the impact on the elk herd and in times of drought, which Arizona has seen quite a bit of in the last, you know, decade or so, um, that they're, they compete heavily for the water sources and run elk off those water sauce water sauce sources oh my god what the heck is wrong with my tongue um and so uh like that's another major concern is you know how do you well you know you already talked about it with the with the smaller animals and the ones that are endangered and so on and so forth is like how do you put value on one one animal's life versus another and you know, there's so many people, like you said earlier, that are, uh, for lack of better terminology, really invested in the well-being of horses. And yeah. So it's like, I, it's yeah, it's a, a really good question, and it's, <laughs> I wish, you know, I wish I had the answer that I could like help with all this stuff and be interesting. You know, in my field as a wildlife biologist, I've mostly focused on large mammals, myself, uh, carnivores, game species, and you know, we manage all of those animals, you know, for the habitat and try to do our best as biologists to do so, you know, through 
uh, state agencies and the federal government. And right. these horses are going unchecked and unmanaged at all. And the elk in that area, um, I think they were reintroduced in the early 1900s, like 1913, 14, 15, there, somewhere around there, they're reintroduced. Mm-hmm. And so they were established as a herd before the 1971 Wild Horse and Burrow Act. You right. Know? And so, you know, if timing has anything to do with it, you know, <laughs> you know, maybe that's a, something you should consider as well. But basically, you know, the elk are managed. They're a huntable population. The deer are managed in that area. They're a huntable population. They're not managing horses at all. And, you know, that's you have to evaluate that, you know, even uh, the livestock in that area are, you know, all livestock in these allotments are heavily, you know, have heavy oversight. You know, mm-hmm. these people that the ranchers that are out there running stock out there are under a lot of different kind of forced requirements of them. Um, I was looking at some of the original allotments that were established that they think that these horses came from that were only established in the early 90s, I believe, is what I found. Um, and interesting enough, the the NEPA document, so the big document that the forest does to evaluate the effects of the environment in the area before they do any sort of allow certain things like grazing or any other impacts to the forest service lands Mm -hmm. included exclusion of specific riparian areas in this in this allotment and it was specifically identified in there that these um, ranchers that were running cattle and horses would need to keep horses and cattle out of these areas through Mm. fencing right and they specifically the ranchers specifically decided not to graze in those allotments because of the challenge of keeping the fencing up and going keeping their stock out of there and now there are horses those feral horses in that specific area and there isn't as far as i've seen any real solid protection for those riparian areas um and, you know, horses can break down fences. They can jump fences. Some individuals can, um, you know, depending on the height and, and such. But, you know, the elk need access to that water. The deer need access to that water. All wildlife, you know, in that area need access to that water. And, you know, with not allowing or allowing these horses to do to access all that country and all that water, you know, is pretty significant for the local wildlife, you know, especially in times like we have now where there's significant droughts. Mm-hmm. Um, for I understand in that area, the winters, you know, just like a lot of places in our, in the West, the winters are not as big and severe, you know, as they used to be with the amount of snow. And, and in that country that the animals used to be pushed out of certain areas because of snow and put down to lower elevations. But I guess now, yeah, they're, With they're all year. No, those horses are up there all year yeah. and they're grazing 24 seven in that country. Whereas the cattle and, the, and, and if there are any horses that are up there by, from ranchers, they're, they're only allowed to graze somewhere around 25% of that country. And even if it's wildlife that graze 25% or help graze it, they still have to move them off of that area mm-hmm. and they move them to different pastures and they move them to different allotments. But the horses, they're grazing 24 seven. Nobody's managing them. Nobody's pushing them off of these allotments. They're, they're there all year, no matter what the condition of the range is. So, 
that's pretty that's pretty serious when you talk about the issues you know of that you know climate change effects on habitat and you know where you're talking about the browse line and just degrading the rangeland um, to the point where you know nothing can really thrive in that country yeah it's uh it's pretty serious i i I mean i think well obviously that's why it's coming up you know they 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 realize that there's a problem here and something needs to be done but of course like everything else we got to worry about everybody all the stakeholders uh opinions on what needs to be done and how to do it so it's kind of a it's a kind of a crappy situation but from a scientific stamp a scientific standpoint for me and for the greater good of everything it's like it's a no-brainer you know <laughs> yeah it, yeah for me too it just it seems like you know the laws and regulations are in place to have the procedures to do what we need to do in this area to get the horses out of that country entirely yeah. like they don't need to be they there's no laws that allow them to be in the apache national forest they're not they're not a wild population they weren't established appropriately and you have to draw lines somewhere and these animals should be removed all 400 of them every one of them should be out of there unless they're under you know an allotment and that's exactly they're managed through the the appropriate means but they're not these horses are feral nobody claims them and they're reproducing and they're continuing to increase you know whereas the the neighboring heber wild horse herd they are they do have a management plan the population is over objective but they're trying to do things to manage them but you know that's its own situation this is a different herd you know this is a different situation all of these animals should be removed so you know we can have some lands without horses you know where you know they just don't belong they don't belong there. Right. you know and kind of to touch a little bit on you know the horse side of things mustang side of things i, I think i mentioned mm-hmm. i own six mustangs you know my wife trains mustangs um and i help a little bit of course <laughs> um you know on our property and i do a little bit of training i'm learning um she got me into horses and I've come to learn, you know, Mustangs are, are, are an interesting, you know, breed of horses. You know, they, they are different than a lot of domestic breeds you have out there um, in regards to temperament and, you know, their, their ability to um, hike and, and, and pack in the mountains with horses. It's incredible. They're, they're extremely smart. Uh, Mustangs are, you know, the ones that we have are really hardy. And, you know, they're, they're good, they're good stock and we really enjoy having them. You know, I pack in the mountains and and with them, I hunt with them. They pack out my deer, you know, this last year, um, my Mustang, my gelding. And, you know, in in those animals are, are different than these animals in regards to, you know, their protections, they are protected and in their different herd units throughout the West. And we obtained ours through the BLM uh, Roundup, you know, program and chose them, you know, at the holding facilities. And, you know, we, we trained them from being untouched to, you know, being pack animals. Mm-hmm. And my wife, she's a part of the BLM TIP program, which is established essentially to get Mustangs to homes. Um, and essentially what they do is they will pay you um, kind of a minor incentive to be part of the program. They pay you a thousand dollars per horse mm-hmm. to, uh, to train them. And 
we usually don't come out on top. We pretty much break even for the most part when doing this, but my wife really enjoys it and I enjoy it as well. And essentially what you do through the tip program is you get these horses halterable, you get them to load in the trailer, you get them to be able to lift their feet and you be able to lead them around, essentially just friendly them. Mm-hmm. So somebody can then take them and, you know, and saddle break them and, and, you know, get them to be, you know, good, good partners and good, good horses um, for, you know, whatever you want to do. And, you know, I, I couldn't say exactly how many, uh, but somewhere over 30 animals over the last few years, my wife has gotten to homes, you know, through, through different training, the tip program. And it's a great program, but it really doesn't do the job uh, of, (laughs) uh, in regards to managing these herds. I mean, the tip program is, is cool. It gets people good horses. It's, it's an effort to try and manage the herd, but ultimately these wild Mustangs are not managed to the degree that they need to be um, out on the range their their populations are most of them are far exceeding what you know carrying capacity is and Mm -hmm. what the uh, what the management plans say they should be um and i'm not you know i have friends that wish you know no horses existed out there on the landscape and i get that perspective i i totally understand you know that you know the destruction that they do and you know what is their actual role on the landscape you know some people say oh they've been here since prehistoric time but the truth is is they're not genetically the same animals as far as i've found in my research as the ones that were here prehistorically you know they were basically reintroduced and and then established you know, as wild free ranging horses in the seventies and saying anything prior to the seventies that's out on the landscape, they've designated as a herd, they created boundaries and they said, these animals are now wild. You know, they've coined or defined them as wild at this point and they're, mm-hmm. they're free, free breeding. And, you know, and a lot of these herds vary significantly, you know, some of them come from draft lines, some of them come from quarter horse lines and there's there's differences between the herds and temperament and body size and you know a lot of people see these horses and a lot of them are kind of small and um you know not really great for certain you know horse folks that are doing certain stuff with horses but other other, horses yeah yeah for working horses um but then there's other herds that are you know i have a horse right now he's two years old and he's uh 16 hands he's a big horse yeah um you know so you know, it, it varies, you know, what sizes and what they have out there. Um, but yeah, that perspective that none of them belong there, you know, I get it, but the truth is they're here and the law protects them. And so without removing <laughs> the right. wild borough act, they're going to be here and management needs to happen. So you can hate them and you can dislike them, but they're here to stay as long as the law is in place to protect them. And, you know, they can be really good stock to have and really good companions and, and really good animals, you know, for sure. So do they need to be managed? Absolutely. Yes. And are there, there's a lot that needs to be done. There are changes that need to be made to manage them. You know, some people are like, well, can we basically put them into the food industry and, you know, make them dog food or, you know, feed them to people, other cultures, eat horses, you know, can we ship them out? Um, And unfortunately, I think it was around 2007, all domestic slaughter of horses in the U.S. was stopped by law. So we used to have slaughterhouses and uh, from what I've learned and what's been kind of reported is horse abandonment and horse neglect has increased significantly since that law was passed in the U.S. Um, it used to be a way that people could, you know, get rid of their horses that were, you know, basically 
that they didn't want anymore or couldn't sell or, you know, were past their prime and, you know, they didn't have a way to take care of them for whatever reason, financially or whatever. They get them to these markets and they would, you know, send them to whatever slaughterhouse that was set up FDA approved and they would, you know, be used for whatever market wanted them. And now that doesn't exist. Um, and some horses do get shipped out of the country. They'll go to Mexico or they'll go to Canada, but there's a lot of organizations trying to stop that as well. And, you know, some people have told me, it's like, well, we can just get the slaughterhouses back up and going and we can, we can get horses back into the market. And that could be really helpful. And I think that would be a great step in the right direction, but, you know, convincing yeah. <laughs> some people to accept that is really oh, hard. Yeah, for sure. You know, we, yeah. we, we alluded to that earlier, but it, you know, comparing them to the wolf, it, I see it all the time. So my dad is a uh, wildlife photographer and okay. he photographs the horses a lot. Uh, actually, a lot of his um, friends kind of call him the horse whisperer because the horses let him get very, very, very close. Okay. Um, and he's got some amazing shots. Yeah. Uh, and I've been there with him and man, I, even just him photographing them, there's you know, 10 different Karens, like, don't pressure them. You're going to disrupt their breeding and blah, 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 blah. Like, please do me a favor. Yeah. But um, <laughs> anyway, so yeah, I could, I can just see the pushback on this. Um, I'm from the, you know, and I'm basically what you've said thus far, I'm from the same philosophy that it, everything needs to be managed. Like we are, the intellectual beings of the planet and we affect everything and it's kind of like our jobs because we have our hands in everything to manage everything holistically you know everything has a place i don't think that horses necessarily need to be eradicated from the landscape but i think that there needs to be a solid management plan um all the way around uh in the case of this particular horse population yeah i think they need to be removed and um i'm not sure what to do with them relocate them if there's a place to relocate them i don't know or you know part of a program like you were talking about um actually before i get too far along i had a question for you and i didn't want to interrupt you do you know where the funding comes from where's where's that thousand dollars come from that uh pays you for that program to you know kind of make them friendlier yeah that's a good question so the blm manages horses on their land specifically and so they are they receive essentially we re we receive federal money and i i'm not certain exactly how you know that pool of money ends up in in there whether it's just through taxes or it's through um grants or it's through the um you know donations it might be a combination of all of the above um and okay. it might be it's not connected to dj or or pr is it no i do not believe so okay so i'm not because that would be another that would be another interesting layer. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah for sure. And yeah, you got me my interest going now. I really want to know specifically, and I'm not sure why I've never really looked that up um, exactly where that money comes from. But 
tracing the money would be really interesting, especially if it's linked to coming in from PR money. But generally, PR money isn't really used uh, in that way at all. PR money is, and, and it probably isn't PR money at all, because PR money is specifically allocated to the state wildlife agency. Right. So I, it, didn't, I didn't think it was a federal, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's more than likely not from PR. But yeah, it would be interesting to figure out where that funding comes from. Now, when you talk about Forest Service, different agency, even right. though you think that they should be collaborating and all shouldn't matter, but it's very different. The Forest Service, the way that they manage horses is somewhat similar in certain areas or certain forests as the BLM. But the Forest Service horses, as far as I know, are not rounded up and sent through this adoption type program. Now, the TIP program is not the only way you can get Mustangs. You can get Mustangs just straight up at auctions that the BLM does. You go to the facilities, literally, oh, I want that horse and pay an adoption fee, which is $25 or $125, just depending on how long the animal's been there and the condition of the animal and such. Um, you know, it, it doesn't cost much to adopt a horse. It's really not that expensive. And they make it as easy pretty much possible for the most part. Um, there's some criteria you need to have to adopt them in regards to your facility because they are Mustangs and the pan type of panels you need are different than domestic horses, but it's a pretty simple process really. Mm. Um, but yeah, the Forest Service and how they fund this, I think is quite a bit different and the BLM has a lot more structure in place to manage Mustangs and, and their management plans and the way they execute them is a lot more established than how the Forest Service does it. So what the Forest Service is doing right now, um, this is actually one of the first times I have looked into in depth how the Forest Service is trying to manage a population of horses on their lands. Now, this is, of course, different. They're feral horses. They're not an established um, population like the Heber, uh, on the Heber right. um, herd there, and that is on Forest Service land, but it's not the Apache. I can't remember the name of the forest in that country. Um, in Heber? But, I think Heber is a still Apache. The, yeah, the Apache sick graves was pretty large. Okay, yeah. It goes right. across the whole central, cent, central eastern Arizona. It's all the same district? Okay. Yeah. yeah. But so, it, it is pretty, from where these horses are at, which I, from what I understand, they're pretty much up against New Mexico border. Fun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. yeah, these ones are. They're the uh, the ones on the Heber are more west, like 80 miles west of there, um, of yeah. this feral population. So, yeah. but yeah, that's a good question. The funding and how it works, you know, it's just like most <laughs> government programs, uh, especially like natural resources, it's underfunded and underemployed, you know, like mm -hmm. the amount of people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there to take care of it and manage it you know there's just not as much resources as you would need to to manage these populations the way you should and in situations like this where the forest service is in charge of doing it there's even less compared to the blm right right um the other thing is too about that heber herd not, not that it's like i think the landscape that they occupy is mostly uh, your JPs, like Juniper Pinion complexes, and the actual um, grasslands. Because, like, north of Heber, it's pretty flat and, like, wide open. It's not 
the same. Um, so like something that was more suitable to what horses normally occupy, you know, like sure. your prairie, yeah. your prairie mm -hmm. grassland type where this is, like I said earlier, I believe is mostly, um, like your old stand Ponderosa. Yeah. And from, you know, biologists, ecology perspective, you know, that might be a totally different situation in regards to the issues with the habitat destruction, just because, you know, when you have a grazing animal out in more typical rangeland where they're, you know, more designed to be in, you know, the effects of that might be not as significant just because, yeah, you know, that's, that's where they're more adapted, especially if they're in a population that's really sustainable. And whereas if you're in a forest landscape and there's not as much graze and kind of the way that things are, are in that country, you know, you might have even more impacts with a big, you know, herbivore like a horse, you know, and compared to, you know, even compared to an elk, that's more of a browser or, you know, it's, it's, it, you know, I mean, elk certainly are grazers, but they right. browse a fair amount too. And, and horses will too. It's just, but I'm sure <laughs> the amount of horses and, you know, just the nature of how horses are, you know, the destruction in the forest ecosystem is quite a bit different than would be out in rangeland open country like you're speaking of yeah i'm actually really curious now to find out this this herd that's over here in the tonto national forest that i was talking about that my dad photographs i'm wondering whether or not that they are a, a similar situation because many many people that i've spoken to have told me that that that's a feral horse herd it's not a actual wild horse yeah. designated so because the ecosystem that they're in is even more fragile than the one in apache sick race because it's closer it's more desert um and definitely more um dependent on rains too yeah for so sure. yeah it's I'm, think... I'm really curious about it we have we have other situations going on i know it's not a little off topic here but we got a serious burrow situation here too um, oh i mean it's <laughs> yeah the burrows are pretty much the same story in a lot of ways just not as uh, charismatic and, and talked about but i mean right. they're essentially it's a very much the same situation with burrows it's just not the extent as far as i know uh, that horses are uh, wild horses and are as well so are there burrows? I'm not aware of any burrows like that are considered truly feral that aren't like part of the, you know, wild horse and burrow act protection areas, but there very well could be. Oh, uh, yeah. I just haven't really, I haven't really looked into it. <laughs> um, yeah. I, yeah. I, 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 haven't, they, I haven't either. I've wanted to kind of dip into it a little bit cause it's, it's pretty crazy. Like, uh, not too far from where I live in Lake Pleasant area, all that whole unit, uh, 20 B is our, is a game unit. Uh, used to be like the best deer unit in the state for desert deer. And okay. it is just, I mean, you could go days without seeing a deer now and you would glass up a hundred freaking burrows out there. You know, it's sure. Yeah. It's pretty yeah, crazy. You, <laughs> yeah. These animals, they, they kind of, they reproduce really well and they go unchecked and, you know, they're, there is some documentation of mountain lions taking uh, horses in, in burrows, but I mean, not to the degree that really needs to happen in any way. They're oh, not yeah. managing them in any way. And, um, you know, and the, the 
the interesting thing when you know people speak about these horses you know burrows are a different story but horses being you know prehistoric you know they should be here they've always been here you also have to remember that there were species of carnivores that were managing these animals at that time that we don't have at all anywhere right. near you know you're no you know are there places where wolves maybe are taking wild horses maybe you know are mountain lions doing it yeah some but like there's nothing managing them really they're just being right. managed by the habitat and you know in our area um and you see this there's a lot of good documentaries out there about wild horses and, and the current situation with them and you know there's there's a lot of evidence out there that these animals you know they're themselves are not healthy and and at all like you're seeing starvation you're seeing issues with you know drought and causing them to to basically die of dehydration you're seeing abandonment of foals out on the landscape in my area near me on the forest service here we have documentation of you know numerous foals being abandoned just because you know it's clear that the uh the female's been bred but she can't keep up with the milk or she just can't keep up with maintaining a foal and then they just leave them to die basically yeah. which you know if you care about wildlife at all and animals at all like you don't want to see these animals just like die of starvation right and die of you know just being abandoned like that like an unhealthy animals just like on the landscape carrying the landscape and deteriorating themselves and the population as far as i've seen in research like no, none of them have crashed because of this. They found ways to somewhat maintain, but still be, you know, suffering. It's it's kind of a wild um, thing, and I'd like to know more about it. But I haven't researched, you know, as a biologist, researched horses and on the landscape um, intensely. But mm -hmm. um, something that we haven't talked about, which I think is really interesting about this topic in this specific area is the center for biological diversity is also backing the removal yeah. of these horses yeah a, which, a very you know, anti-hunting uh organization is locking arms with a bunch of hunting organizations too yeah so if, yeah. That, if that doesn't tell you something you know like something's wrong here if they could recognize the need really? uh, and, and set their uh, agenda aside you know yeah then when I start, first started learning about this, and then that was one of the first things I saw on the Howell website was that the Center of Biological Diversity back. Uh, I was floored when Charles told me. About I was too. <laughs> that was like that really got my interest. And and there's a biologist that they have on staff that's been looking into this and their impacts and taking photos of the destruction out in that specific area. I mean, when you start seeing things like that, you really know it's kind of gotten over overboard. Like where yeah. Center of Biological Diversity is actually getting involved, being like, okay, this is serious, you know. And that might be, you know, one of the things that really helps with pushing this forward, because I think we're kind of dancing around this idea. But like, I think everybody who, you know, out in, in the West where you have these populations, you really should know what populations are in your area or near you or areas that you hunt, even if you're not from the West and know what ones are designated wild mustang and burrow populations and what their population objectives are and what the impacts are and go out there and take a look at it when you're hunting and see um be a part of it you know be understanding and be educated in it and then learn about like for example like you're getting interested in this population that you think might be a feral population and who's looking into it like nobody says anything about it or doesn't oh it's a super touchy touchy subject that's why there's a lot of people that i mean 
like lots and lots of people that go there and photograph some grass oh, yeah. daily. Yeah. So, and that's the same story where I am. I mean, people love, I mean, love horses and they do bring, um, value to an area, you know, for things like wildlife photography and, you know, <laughs> there's high schools, you know, I think the high school in the area of where this, the Heber herd is, is called the Mustangs, you know, mm. like their mascot in the Heber area is called the Mustangs. So like, it's clear, like people do like the horses. They are very majestic. Seeing them out in the wild like that is, is pretty amazing for people to see and watching these horses, like the, the males battle for the females oh, yeah, and they're all torn up and they're, Oh, it's kind of an amazing thing to go watch really. Um, and I understand it, but there's also, you know, good reason you know as hunters and, and conservationists to like pay attention to what's going on and get involved and not be scared to get into the controversy and discuss this and get educated and see if the forest service or the blm or are, are doing what they're supposed to and then start trying to you know advocate for you know management and pro- appropriate right. management right. necessary yeah i it, think most people have shied away from doing it especially this hurt by me it's because they're afraid of the backlash, you know? Yeah. And, well, you got to pick your battles, right? <laughs> and that's why I'm, sure, I'm pretty sure the yeah. Forest Service hasn't done anything about it because they don't want to be, you know, they don't want to deal with it. No, they don't. And but, eventually they really yeah, but eventually it's going yeah. to have to be dealt with because it's it's a bad situation. Like, um, yeah. I'm very and I think that's fearful only... of that habitats getting destroyed, like, badly. Totally. I think that's the only reason why this area that we're talking about in Arizona is being brought into light is, you know, for the most part is it's gotten way too far. And, you know, it could be a good example of our poster child of like, we let this get too far. We've done all the research. We need to do something about it and look at other places that maybe aren't at this level yet, or maybe they are and start using this as a model. Um, And there might be other models out there that I'm not familiar with. Like I'm really, like I said, just kind of, getting myself acquainted with all of these issues with horses. And, you know, I've gotten deeper into it now that I own Mustangs and, you know, my wife is very passionate about them and she supports all of this too. Like she really thinks that there should be serious management uh, and a lot of people that are Mustang owners and, and understand, you know, wildlife and conservation also believe the same thing. I think, you know, it's just like many topics where, the extremes are the most vocal, you know, the guys that gals that want all the horses off the landscape, get them the hell out of there. You know, it's only for wildlife and the people that are like, no, these are like sacred beings. They're like gods to me, basically mm-hmm. like don't touch them are the ones that, you know, spread the most um, information out there. And well, yeah, really that, that's, that's just everything going along with, with hunting too. We, we have the same problem, you know, yeah. it's the, it's the other side's always the loudest and the squeakiest wheel because, not that we're less passionate as sportsmen than they are, but that's how they, you know, wield their battles. And we've always quietly, you know, been the silent majority type situation or however you want to put it, but where we don't stand up and, you know, that's like what Hal's Hal's been trying to do is to change that. You know, we have to be activists. It's a, you know, that dirty word that, people don't want to hear because it's usually associated with the opposite opposition. But in, in all essence, you, you know, you kind of have to take a page out of their book and, and, and not necessarily play dirty, but like they do, but to, to do some of the same things that they do and have the same approach, you know, 
that's the only way to get heard. (laughs) Yeah, certainly. And, you know, Powell for me is, is, is really changed the game. I think for people being able to, uh, to make an impact and reach directly to their representatives and those involved in these types of action, um, items that, you know, make the decisions just because, you know, we're all so busy. Like I just had my daughter, like, well, she's two weeks old now and, you know, my first kid and the amount of, you know, time I have now is decreasing even more, you know, and just having tools like Howl to be able to like, become aware first off of something that's going on and then have a location where you can quickly find, you know, credible research and credible information on these topics all in one location where the action items are. It's got me able to like really jump on certain things that I didn't know really existed, you know, right. in, in a really good structure. And then immediately be able to be like, you know what, like I do want to say something about this. And even if it's just one extra vote towards yay or nay towards a specific issue um like this one where the structure in place from howl that sends it directly to your uh representatives and people that are trying to address this horse feral horse issue it's 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 awesome it's really great and it doesn't take hardly any time right i mean right (laughs) that that was the goal you know because we have this uh, in, in society now, this philosophy that if it takes like more than 30 seconds, you know, we can't, we can't even get through a video on, on social media. That's, that's why like vines and stuff like that became, and TikToks became really popular because, oh, you know, you can yeah. just flip through content that's, you know, a few seconds long, get your fix and move on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's so well, funny. I mean, it's so, adapted to it. <laughs> what's that? I said, how was adapted to that um, yeah. current way of doing things? And yeah, for better or worse, it's the way it is. And for a lot of folks, you know, not like you said, not a lot of people take the time or have the time or think they have the time to do, do stuff like this. And, you know, being able to uh, have that tool is, is really helpful for sure. Well, thank you. Thanks. Um, thanks for helping us out with, uh, you know, some of these, you have you've definitely uh, been a, good source of knowledge and, uh, and helped us out a lot through, uh, through the process here. And, uh, yeah, I want to yeah. make sure you recognize for that. So, well, uh, thanks for coming on and talking with me about this situation. If you, you know, guys that are listening in want to get involved, get on the Hal action center and, uh, let your opinion be heard. So, uh, with that, I will, uh, bid you adieu and uh we will talk to you soon appreciate you johnson you're welcome good to talk with you john thanks